Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. Science is wild. Take DNA. It lets you do a whole lot more than just find out who your ancestors were. Imagine using DNA to isolate and map sequences that accurately predict cuteness in babies. I'm looking at it right now. A detailed graph that is illustrating research in which DNA samples were taken in utero from 2100 first trimester fetuses. The samples were then used to tell parents within 93% accuracy whether their babies would be born cute or downright unpleasant. Wait. Oh. This is actually a graph that's illustrating levels of Listeria contamination in imported cheese. Somebody just swapped out the title. Okay, that, that was kind of dumb and 100% fake. But it was dumb and fake for a purpose. Because the truth is, if somebody did falsify data, if in providing evidence to back up a big scientific claim, a scientist simply bullshit everyone by providing something that looked like evidence, would I be able to tell the difference? Would anyone in the general interest press? Or would we just assume that it must be the real deal because it came from science and if it was fake, well, surely someone from science would have caught it, right? Turns out no, not necessarily. Today you're going to hear a story in which that dumb made-up scenario that I just described actually happened. A Canadian scientist was challenged to back up his claim that he could use DNA to distinguish between different strains of cannabis, which would have been a pretty valuable thing to be able to do during the weed marketing gold rush. So to prove it, he just took a graph of United States arrest data, changed the title, and put it in a presentation to say, here, here's my evidence. He did a lot more than that, and he would have gotten away with it too, if not for some meddlesome researchers. This is a story that we found in the scientific press. Our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk, has turned it into an audio story for you. Wait for it. It certainly surprised no one on the Canada Land team when I came to them with a pitch for this week's story from a geeky science magazine. Jesse's words, not mine. But you know what? I'll wear that nerd badge proudly, especially on days like today when I get a chance to tell you a story I found in one of those magazines that really made me go, whoa, more people need to hear that wild story. My name is Charles Piller, and I'm an investigative reporter for Science Magazine. That wild story was written by Charles, a journalist from Oakland, California, who dug up one hell of a scoop on the goings-on at one Canadian university, and with one professor in particular. And this story really has the potential to shake the foundations of trust in science in this country. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. This all starts with a botany professor at the University of Guelph 
named Stephen Newmaster. I think Newmaster is an exceptional character in a number of ways. He's uh, charismatic, articulate, charming. He's a guy who people naturally like and are drawn to. I've spent my life looking at plants, studying plants. I'm a classic botanist that crawls around in the woods, names new species of plants. Back in June, I was in the Amazon looking for a particular species. We had to go deep into Manau, down a bunch of tributaries of the Amazon. This is the type of work that I do. Stephen Newmaster's star really rose in Canadian academia in 2013. And I know the idea of a star botanist might be new to you, but stay with me. In 2013, Newmaster published a research expose that was widely picked up by media outlets across Canada and the United States. He looked at 44 different types of herbal supplements and products, things like echinacea, St. John's wort, you know the stuff. And he wrote about how he used DNA barcoding technology to look at these products. And what he found was that much of it was fake. When he first came out with his uh, very, very widely read article and widely acclaimed article on the testing of nutritional supplements in 2013, uh, it really gave the industry a black eye, and it led to uh, actions in New York State by the attorney general there that uh, caused uh, large companies to pull their products off the shelves. This was a huge, huge problem for the nutritional supplement industry. And new at five, Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is now asking four major retailers to stop selling certain supplements in New York State over labeling concerns. His office sent cease and desist letters today to GNC, Target, Walgreens, and Walmart. Schneiderman says their store brand herbal supplements either could not be verified to actually contain the labeled substance or were found to contain ingredients not listed on the labels. But the industry was desperate to save face. And with that, a new opportunity presented itself for Stephen Newmaster, who, as it turns out, happened to own a business specializing in the certification of herbal products. What was so interesting about it to me was that the herbal supplement companies, many of them said, okay, we're going to take this to heart. We're going to hire the person who's criticized us to help us become better. And so they hired Newmaster to do their testing and to certify their products, to give his figurative and literal seal of approval that was printed on the company's products, and then to sell those products with that seal of approval. This all changed how the nutritional supplement business operated, how things were tested and marketed. It turned it all on its head. But that was just the prelude to the story that Charles was telling. Earlier, I played a clip for you of Charles describing Stephen Newmaster. But I didn't play all of it. Let's hear that back for a second. I think Newmaster is an exceptional character in a number of ways. He's uh, charismatic, articulate, charming. He's a guy who people naturally like and are drawn to. He's also someone that our investigation found has a history of plagiarism, of exaggeration, fabulism, basically just making up stuff about what he's done and how important he is. Ah, there it is. All of a sudden, this story gets really meta. A professor accuses an unregulated industry of fraud, only to then be accused of fraud himself. And lo and behold, now we learn that the things that they were doing to make their products legit were based 
on an article that is now regarded as fraudulent and is under review by the journal that it published it. The nutritional supplement article, published in BMC Medicine, now has at the top of it an editor's note that says, quote, Readers are alerted that concerns have been raised with respect to the reliability of the data presented in this article, end quote. This was the direct result of the digging done by Charles and a number of academics over the past few months and years. But the trail of breadcrumbs they followed suggests a continued pattern of behavior that has been left unchecked for years. Mr. founded a nonprofit within the University of Guelph, the Natural Health Products Research Alliance, and it raised money from a variety of nutritional supplement companies whose products this organization would test and then certify as legitimate good products. And putting aside for a second the question about whether that testing was actually accurate or valuable in any way, one of the things that Newmaster did to promote this organization was listing his many august strategic partners, is the phrase he used. These included the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, U.S. Pharmacopeia, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, the Canadian National Research Council, and the American Botanical Council. So hearing about all of these important agencies as being the strategic partners of Newmaster's group certainly would encourage donations and credit to the organization. Turns out none of those organizations had any defined relationship with Newmaster's organization, none. And so the question is, how does he continue to just put out this information that is exaggerating, apparently making stuff up, uh, borrowing from other people, plagiarizing over and over and over again, and for over a period of years with no one doing anything about it, no, either no one noticing or no one feeling like they could do anything about it. Um, t- to me, that seemed a a very strange part of it until, of course, Ken Thompson, I think, quite courageously spoke up and started to ask serious questions about Newmaster's work and his own uh, writing um, with Newmaster and how that went for him. So my name is Ken Thompson. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University. Ken Thompson is absolutely critical to this story. Because while the research underpinning the nutritional supplement article has now been called into question, it wasn't the first domino to fall. Yeah, so Stephen Newmaster, so he's a professor at the University of Guelph, has been for over 20 years. And he was my research supervisor for one of my major undergraduate projects back in 2013-2014. His research started with an interest in DNA barcoding, technology that one particular botany professor was an expert in. So I was assigned as a part of my undergraduate uh, degree program to complete a research project in Stephen Newmaster's lab. And his research at the time focused a lot on the technology of DNA barcoding, which is a technique or a technology that allows researchers to use a small bit of DNA to figure out what species an organism is. It's kind of like barcodes at a supermarket. You know, the cashier will scan the barcode and it'll say, okay, you know, this is this particular product. So what we wanted to do for our project and the the data that Steve gave me was trying to figure out if you can use DNA barcoding to 
quickly, cheaply, and accurately identify the plant species that live in a particular plot of forest. This research, if it proved to be effective, could save so much valuable time and money in data collection. Typically, what's done for environmental monitoring projects or other projects where the types of plants in an area needs to be understood is that experts will go out and canvas a plot of land over time. It's expensive, painstaking, and time-consuming to hire experts to do this. So what if you could hire just anyone to go out and collect samples, and then researchers could scan them in a lab instead? You just say, collect everything that looks different, uh, sequence it, and then tell us what's there. And so Steve gave me this data set that was from a study he claimed. And then over the next year, we worked together and I, I published it in the journal Biodiversity and Conservation. Um, and haven't really worked with or talked with Steve since. The research concluded that DNA barcoding was far more effective at identifying plants in a plot of land, finding vastly more species than relying on human identification alone. And it cost 37% less to do it. It was Ken Thompson's first piece of published research, a start to a career that's then taken him across Canada and now to Stanford University. Over time, sort of throughout my, my master's and my PhD, I started to work more with genetic data. And then I started to think more and more about that data set that Steve had given me in the past. And it seemed a little bit too clean to me. What does he mean by that, too clean? Basically, the barcode data showed more than it should have been able to. Barcoding, for example, shouldn't be able to differentiate between different species of willows. But this data did. Pretty much all the willows in Ontario are genetically identical at the spots in the genome that we use as the barcodes. Um, and our study claimed to have distinguished all these willow species using barcodes. And I knew that was pretty much impossible. So this is what had Ken worried, but not like really worried, at least not yet. If you think you might find something bad, it's kind of difficult to overcome the resistance in your own mind to like, you know, take a deep look. It's kind of easy to just not look. But eventually I just said, you know, why don't I go and take a look at that genetic data and see what I find just to just to set my mind at ease. But looking at data at a university he was no longer working with wasn't so simple. So Ken followed the formal process and submitted his concerns about the research to one of the deans at the university. I thought it was unlikely that the data were going to have been generated with the highest integrity. But I wanted to approach the situation in good faith and just sort of, you know, maybe I was misunderstanding something. So I did file uh, an allegation of uh, misconduct. And I, I went through the formal process at the University of Guelph, which is that you write to the, the dean of the College of Biological Sciences. You send a sort of a, a document just sort of outlining the facts. On further investigation, Ken found that the raw information Stephen Newmaster had given him was never published to any of the open source data collection banks that exist to provide transparency for instances of concern like this one. And uploading this information is the standard practice. Steve, back in 2013, 2014, was supposed to upload the genetic data to these sort of repositories of, of genetic data. So they're called GenBank and, and also the Guelph database, the Barcode of Life database. And so when I went back to look, it turned out that Steve actually hadn't ever submitted the data. There was nothing there from our study. And that was somewhat surprising to me because we said we were, were supposed to do it. If there's no data on GenBank, that's consistent with maybe there never being any data. At first, what I really wanted the University of Guelph to do is just, you know, 
confirm, basically look for receipts, you know, confirm that there were um, people hired for this project, for example, check those internal databases. And so Ken launched what he thought was a formal investigation at the University of Guelph in early 2020. And then in the sort of interim, the COVID pandemic kicked off, the the um, inquiry or the investigation took longer than it was supposed to have, but I figured, you know, it's a kind of unprecedented time. I'm okay with being a little bit patient. And then about eight months later, the dean wrote back to me and said, oh, I misspoke. Uh, I didn't start an investigation. I just thought you were asking me for advice. There's nothing to see here. He got the complete runaround. And so Ken, at this point, felt kind of helpless to actually have his concerns investigated. I collected additional evidence and I sent it. And and then they said, nope. And I collected additional evidence and I sent it. And they said, nope. Um, And this happened three or four times. Then I eventually tried to get the journal to investigate. And they said, you know what, we're just going to defer to what the university did. But at the same time, Ken was going through some inner turmoil about this. What would it mean if he had his own research retracted? And honestly, hadn't he done enough? He'd brought it up with the school. Did he need to do more? First of all, you know, I worked hard on this paper and it was fraudulent and I was worried about my own reputation. You know, I, I think what the University of Guelph did, which was all these senior administrators and deans sort of telling me that everything I was showing them was not even close to anything that they would investigate for research misconduct made me have a lot of self-doubt about my own ability to evaluate this thing. Um, And so, you know, I was feeling pretty nervous and pretty low at the time that I filed the allegation. But I just I just felt that I wasn't convinced that they did a thorough job investigating my complaints. And I just felt, you know, I think there's something here. And the more time passed, the more Ken poked around, and the more sure he became that he was on to something. So he went public. Not by talking to a reporter, at least not initially. No, he posted to a popular academic ecology blog. And from there, it got the attention of others in the field. One of the most important developments, um, especially to my own you know, psychology and my morale, was that Within about 24 hours of me posting that blog post on this Ecolivo Ivoico website, Polly Bear, who's a professor at the University of Guelph, you know, member of Order of Canada, and perhaps most importantly, essentially the, the guy who's really pioneered DNA barcoding and built this whole research institute at the University of Guelph, posted a public comment in response to me saying, you know, I think this guy's concerns are legitimate. Polly Bear's support went beyond just helpful comments on the blog posting, though. When I read that blog post, you know, I knew that we could validate one of his concerns. And that was that was the data available, was the underpinning data available. And I say that because the paper indicated the data, the sequence data, had been collected in the research center that I oversee. And our records indicated that we had not gathered any such data And secondly, I checked with the lead of my informatics unit, who confirmed there had been no data deposited in the Barcode of Life data system. I was very concerned that the data did not exist. And so Polly Bear was now joining Ken Thompson in the quest to dig deeper. More on this after the break. Paul and Ken grew their team further. Six other industry experts from different institutions across Canada also started digging. And last summer, they filed a second complaint against Stephen Newmaster. 
And this time, it wasn't just about the data used in Ken's research. It was widespread. In addition to fraudulent research practices, the allegation also outlined how the complainants believed Stephen Newmaster was guilty of plagiarism by way of using researchers' datasets without their knowledge. The complaint also alleges that Newmaster failed to disclose financial conflicts of interest in his research. Charles Piller said that the University of Guelph would not provide any details of Stephen Newmaster's financial interests when he requested financial disclosure documents. So we filed a new allegation in June of 2021. And this time, we were very careful that the specific process was followed. You know, back in 2020, I wasn't as familiar with the process. I didn't realize that, you know, there had to be an independent member on this investigation committee and and, and that sort of thing. And so this time we filed a a 43-page allegation with a lot of evidence. I think things began fairly enough. There are established protocols and that led to a formal investigation. Unfortunately, this dean who started the investigation was kicked off the committee. We don't know why. So the dean that agreed to finally start the formal investigation was then removed from it. And then a committee was assembled that would conduct a formal investigation. But there's been some doubt cast on whether or not the people selected were maybe the right people to investigate this particular complaint. Let's bring in reporter Charles Piller again to explain. The committee that was appointed to review the complaint against Newmaster by his uh, colleagues and others about his three academic studies, none of the members of that committee had any expertise in the subject matter that would allow them to evaluate the concerns. So they relied heavily on a outside consultant whose name they never provided. So no one knows who that consultant was. No one knows whether that person also has a conflict of interest. They initially offered to only have a single 30-minute interview with all eight of us, which is obviously extremely insufficient to cover the details here. And when we did meet with them, it seemed like they really didn't do their homework. They didn't have very good questions. They were asking some questions that I kind of thought, like, are you kidding? Are you seriously asking this right now? Um, And then we never met with them again. And so a year passes. Charles Piller publishes his first article on this mess in February, while the results of the investigation are pending. But June 1st was the day they were waiting for. They told us that the decision was going to come on June 1st. They hadn't talked to us at all about anything. So it seemed like they just had approached this entire thing with bad faith, and it was not surprising. Not surprising in that the university found Stephen Newmaster was not guilty of misconduct. The preliminary decision from the committee's chairman says that Newmaster, quote, displayed a pattern of poor judgment and failed to apply the standards reasonably expected in research activity in his discipline, end quote. But the decision says that there was insufficient evidence to find Newmaster guilty of misconduct in relation to any of the three studies that he had published that the complainants had included in their allegation. I think it's fair to say that we're disappointed with the way in which uh, that has unfolded. They said, we found no evidence of fraud in any of these allegations we made in the 43 pages of our initial allegation. And that really floored us. But I kind of thought that maybe, you know, with seven other people with detailed access to the internal records showing that there never was any data generated, that they would at least have to acknowledge reality, that there's something seriously wrong here. And they never did. The big question in this case does appear to be, why? If the case against Stephen Newmaster is so strong, then why would they find him not guilty of misconduct? 
Charles thinks it's threefold. One is that there are close relationships between some university administrators at Newmaster that go back years. Uh, Second, he's a pretty high-profile guy who's brought in a bunch of money, and they are undoubtedly concerned about aspects of that. For example, if some of his work was found to be fraudulent by a government agency, they could try to claw back that money, which would be harmful to the university. I think, though, the more important thing is the potential reputational effects on the University of Guelph, which is a large university that has a lot to protect in regard to its reputation. And if the university were to come down on Newmaster for what looks to be like a multi-year record of all of the kinds of apparently fraudulent activities that were uncovered by myself and also by the people who wrote the complaint against him, that would be a pretty significant reputational hit against the university. The other aspect of this is that Newmaster was able to create within the university a funding body called the Natural Health Products Research Alliance that collects funding for Newmaster's work. But instead of being arm's length from the university, as it would normally be, it is embedded within the university's alumni affairs department. And this means that admitting fraudulent activity would likely directly turn off a stream of funding for the university. But also, what would the University of Guelph say to all of the donors who have given money for this research to date? So I think they're probably trying desperately to shut this thing down for all the wrong reasons. I asked Stephen Newmaster for an interview for the story. and Charles Piller asked for the story that ran in science but he has not responded to any interview requests. In his written response to the University of Guelph submitted during the investigation, he flatly denies being guilty of manufacturing or manipulating data. According to Newmaster, the mistakes were just an oversight and somebody else's mistake, not his. He even went ahead and set it straight, uploading the data that should have been shared years earlier. But here's the thing. The data he eventually provided, well, according to Ken Thompson's analysis it also appears to be fake. In the interim, Steve had his research associate produce a genetic data set that would have been like the type of genetic data set that underlied my study and upload it to these internal databases. And what they did, and it's incredibly obvious, is that they just copied existing records. You know, if you just made up a random barcode at a store and a cashier scanned it, it wouldn't scan to anything. You actually have to match the barcode of the species or in the, in the grocery store analogy, the product. You can't just make up letters. You have to actually have the right sequence. And so they just copied publicly available records that had already been generated for these species and concocted a a fake data set, uploaded it on these private repositories. And then it was incredibly easy to prove that the data were, um, were, were not legitimate. On the financial disclosure front of his defense, Stephen Newmaster said in his statement, quote, I have acknowledged funding organizations that support the research of these manuscripts. And I do not have financial interests in any of the industry partners associated with funding any of the projects associated with these manuscripts. The university is my only source of income and has been since I began my employment as a faculty member. This statement can be supported by my Revenue Canada tax assessments for any year if required. End quote. The academic journal, Biodiversity and Conservation, has since retracted Ken and Stevens' published research. The editor's note says, quote, Concerns were raised regarding the data sources and reproducibility. The validity of the data included in this article could not be confirmed. Author Ken A. Thompson agrees to this retraction, 
Author Stephen G. Newmaster has not responded to any correspondence from the editor or publisher about this retraction. End quote. But ultimately, this pattern didn't stop with the three papers that were detailed in the formal complaint to the University of Guelph. Charles Piller spent months digging and found so much more. In a radio interview during COVID, he described his work sequencing the genome of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, several months before it was discovered. So you said you were called in last fall. So a year ago, this is before we knew about uh, the current coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. So you were doing something for all coronaviruses? No, this is specific for COVID-19. So the, much of, of the world already knew about corona infections that were starting to take off in China on the mainland. I thought we only heard about them in December at the earliest. No, there's, well, that would be hitting public news. But in the scientific community, we are already sequencing samples, blood samples, saliva samples. and So, in other words, an impossibility. And... This is the sort of seemingly cavalier messaging that he often engaged in, where he would display other people's work as his own, sometimes even displaying information that was not in any way related to his own work or the subject matter of his speaking engagement, and yet describing it as his own work. It's something Newmaster did before, Pillar says, when he broke into another hot botanical market, the cannabis business. Some years back, he had ventured forth into the world of cannabis authentication, which was becoming a big business at that time. And he basically took images from other scientific analyses, one involving different types of ginseng, and displayed it in one of his speeches as an example of his own work detecting different strains of cannabis. As you can see, each one of these dots down in the ordination represents multiple samples that we purchased. So we, we spent a fair amount of money on this. We have a good budget. And we then classified the metabolites. So if you look at the bottom at the PC ordination, the first thing to understand these ordinations is that two dots that are close together have metabolomic profiles that are similar. So think of it as a similarity matrix. So it's it wasn't even cannabis. And I think an even more bizarre example of that is that he was trying to make a name for himself as a expert in distinguishing between different strains of cannabis. So this is a way of manufacturers uh, authenticating the claims they make for the different products that they're selling in the cannabis realm. And so he was describing an experiment he did where he tested three different strains of cannabis uh, using a, a machine called a nuclear magnetic resonance imager. And then he showed a chart that was meant to show the similarities within each strain so that companies could say, look, we tested in this way and we authenticated these strains in this way. And you can see on my chart this experiment we did that shows how closely the different strains aligned to each other and are distinguished from each other. As you heard, Newmaster previously displayed ginseng DNA to illustrate his claims about cannabis. But on this other occasion, he went even further afield. This very official looking chart he used wasn't data from the botanical world, 
at all. The chart he showed, not only was it not cannabis, not only was it not even a plant, it was arrest records in the 50 U.S. states. So you got to ask yourself, what is a, a scientist thinking when he takes a chart that's easily findable online of arrest records by police in the 50 U.S. states and describes it as his own experiment distinguishing between cannabis strains. It's just a chart that shows colored dots. And to the naive observer, you're thinking, wow, this guy, he is really amazing. He did this elaborate experiment to prove that you can clearly distinguish between cannabis strains using this scientific method. Uh, in fact, it was utterly phony, as we were able to prove in our investigation. So this is part of the litany of examples that we found involving apparent plagiarism, fabulism, making up aspects of his scientific record, making up aspects of his record, including being a fellow at a particular institute in Australia, making up the size of his grants to seem more impressive, saying he got an enormous amount of money from a Canadian research agency. And in fact, it was a tiny fraction of the amount that he stated according to the agency's own records. Sometimes this became so, <laughs> I, I, I laugh a little bit and pardon me for that, but it, it's hard not to when you see the brazen quality of some examples of things that we found. This is a case where it's very clear to me that the processes that we use to evaluate accusations of scientific misconduct in Canada are insufficient. And that gets to the crux of the issue here for Charles Piller, for Paul Hébert, and for the guy who started this all, Ken Thompson. The case of alleged misconduct against Stephen Newmaster is one thing, but they are all far more concerned with what they've witnessed in the investigation and what it means for trust in scientific research in Canada. I wasn't convinced that I was wrong. You know, people often say something to the tune of trust the science and things like this. And I think it's important to note, you know, science works. Like the methods that we're using to evaluate data fabrication are scientific methods, right? They're falsifiable. We have hypotheses, you know, if this data is real, this should be what we'll see. If data is not real, this is what we should see. And it's really the administration, so not non-scientists, who are standing in the way of science being sort of this own self-correcting process. And so I think trust in science should be very high, but the way that we're investigating scientific misconduct in Canada, there's this political step that we have to go through involving these university administrators, and that is preventing the scientific method from really reaching completion. They're sort of just stopping it. And that's pretty problematic. Anytime society's trust in the scientific process is shattered, it tends to resurface at moments like this when human health, human values are at risk. And so everyone, you know, every time you see a car speed through a, a red light, uh, you know, unless there's some penalty imposed on that, society begins to distrust the fact that we're taking care of the system. Uh, the standards are evolving. So Denmark first in 2017, uh, Sweden in 2020, uh, 
recognize that universities, research institutions, cannot effectively investigate themselves. There's too much uh, conflict of interests. And so they moved to establish national offices for research integrity and and move the investigations out of the research uh, institutes. And I think that's what uh, I would really like to see in Canada. It, it's what's required to, to maximize societal trust. I mean, our mission is to a- advance understanding of our world. And you can't do that if individuals working within that system are fabricating data. There's an expression of follow the science that has become more and more popular. Uh, But you need to make sure that the science is accurate. And the only way that we're going to build and ensure public trust in the scientific enterprise is to expose wrongdoing where we see it, to expose questionable activities when we see them, and to police the field in an aggressive way. The University of Guelph was reached for comment for this story, and given the school's role in policing this particular issue, one would have hoped that they would be willing to engage with the subject. Instead, they sent a statement that said, The university takes allegations of research misconduct very seriously. The investigation in question remains active. The university will continue to follow the policy and procedures and act as appropriate and necessary based on the final outcome. The investigation process and any preliminary findings are confidential. So at the end of all of this, it does appear as if Stephen Newmaster will continue his work at the university. His publishing record shows no signs of him slowing down with 15 articles and book chapters published last year alone. And most recently, he's written about how different probiotic products, a new hot commodity, and different cooking spices and herbs are fraudulently packaged and sold. Is it true? It could be. But boy, it's sure hard to tell after hearing the whole story that came before it. And that's the problem, isn't it? How are we supposed to have trust in science, as has become our mantra, when stories like this can still be told? That is your Canada Land episode. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com. New episode of Commons going up this week. Make sure you catch that. This episode was produced with help from Jonathan Goldsby. It was reported by our senior producer, Sarah Larniuk. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Cold. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week, and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. John Woodside, 
Ottawa-based climate reporter for Canada's National Observer. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. Welcome to the show, John. Today we're going to talk correction, recession, depression, celebration. Also, the Emergency Measures Act. Look, it's, it's what the police asked for. Or, you know, they didn't actually ask, but it's probably what they meant. I mean, they were implying. They they waggled their eyebrows, tapped their nose, something like that. Welcome to Shortcuts, John, where we talk about the news. Yeah, great to be here. Happy to do it. John, it's your first time on Shortcuts. Welcome. Uh, But you may be aware that we consider it our job to alert people to news stories that they might otherwise miss and which they really shouldn't miss. We try to duly note them. Can you duly note something for us? Yeah. Right now there's a climate conference going on in Bonn. And the thing that I think is really being slept on here is uh, something that has to do with climate diplomacy, climate finance, and really climate reparations. It's uh, kind of a wonky sounding thing. It's called loss and damage financing, but uh, it's a pretty important thing. And in the background here is that to get the Paris Agreement signed, rich countries promised uh, poorer countries that by 2020, they would provide $100 billion worth of climate finance every year. Uh, That promise was broken. The last numbers we had were about $80 And Canada and Germany are working on what they call a delivery plan. How are we actually going to deliver this money? And what's important about this is that this is coming at a time when we also all recognize that the finance that's going to be needed to to help countries pull off this energy transition is going to be in the trillions of dollars, not billions. So trust has been broken at a very difficult time while these negotiations are heating up. So right now in Bonn, there's this conference going on. Uh, It's about the halfway point between the annual climate change conference, the COP26 in Glasgow last year, COP27 will be in Egypt this year, and loss and damage financing is is kind of the big thing. And and what it means is essentially a big pool of money uh, that would go towards countries to pay for damages, damages from floods, fires, basically climate catastrophe. At COP26 in Glasgow, uh, the United States and Europe spiked a deal. China and uh, the G77, they came up with a deal that would provide this kind of financing, and the West spiked it. So uh, this is the big hot topic leading into COP27 this year in November is, are we going to get this money together? What's this money going to look like? And the fact it's being negotiated right now, and I haven't really seen any coverage of it, to me, it's a big blind spot. Duly noted. I'm going to quickly duly note the story that's reported here in Toronto on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. And this is how the story broke. The story broke that the media has a scoop. They've learned that the chief of Toronto police is going to apologize. It's a news story about an upcoming apology to the black community. Sort of strange. We, like, we've learned they're, they're about to apologize. And then you get into what the apology is about later on in the story, which has to do with the release of race-based data that the cops have been collecting when it comes to the use of force and strip searches. And what I want to duly note is that the way that the public comes to know the story is not the results of this data or the report on the data, uh, which will be revealed by the time people listen to this, that will be out, which I will imagine will demonstrate that the use of force and strip searches is much more prevalent 
on racialized communities, specifically the black community. That's not the way this news is being delivered, like, which wouldn't be a huge shocker, but the data helps us understand and quantify the problem. Instead, the apology of the police is the breaking news headline. How did the media come to learn this wonderful scoop that they got ahead of that an apology is forthcoming? A police memo leaked. That's what memos do. They have minds of their own and they just sort of leak. <laughs> yeah, I wonder who leaked it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's entirely possible they didn't want this to get out. But it's also, I think, reasonable to consider the possibility that the police are good at this and were able to essentially front load their apology above the actual racist abuses that they're apologizing for, that their coming apology gets top billing. Maybe that's intentional. Maybe we should look at this a little bit skeptically. And maybe I know that everybody likes a leaked memo. Every reporter loves the ability to get ahead of things. But I kind of wonder if we shouldn't consider some of these dynamics when we're reporting stories like this. Yeah, right. I mean, um, it speaks to, again, like a sort of an unfortunate trend in a lot of uh, reporters that just kind of treat authority figures, people in authority, uh, institutions with authority as like not having motivation, right? I mean, like we need to be skeptical of things people do because they're, <laughs> I think it's obvious to like, you know, the public that people have motivations. I don't know why so many reporters seem to forget this. Duly noted. We invoked the Emergencies Act after we received advice from law enforcement. Did yourself or anyone in the OPS request the invocation of the Emergency Act? I did not make that request. I'm not aware of anybody else in the auto police service who did. So who actually asked for it? My understanding is there is a, um, a misunderstanding of the minister's words. Uh, were you briefed that it was being proposed uh, upon the recommendation of law enforcement? I'm not aware of any recommendation from law enforcement. Quite frankly, this was a decision of government. Oh, John, when the government took away everybody's rights and they and they invoked the Emergency Measures Act and they said it's because the police advised us to do so, they didn't mean that the police gave them advice to invoke the Emergency Measures Act. Don't be silly. What they meant was that the police gave them advice in general that they could use some tools or things. The advice was – it didn't mention the Emergency Measures Act, but the reasonable thing to do – was to invoke this act that exists for, I don't know, nuclear holocaust, hurricanes, things like that. That's why they had to invoke the Emergency Measures Act. Now that makes sense. We have different MPs saying variations of the police requested this. Oh, they didn't request it. They advised that it could be helpful. But then we still made this choice. Police are kind of being a little unclear about what happened. I know Freeland on Tuesday night, but there was this committee about the Emergency Act and, and she was getting grilled on it. And her sort of answer to, to the committee was like concerns about economic reputation. Mm -hmm. Like it, it wasn't even about police response. It, it was like, well, we need to do something about the United States might think we're not a good trade partner anymore. I mean, this, this doesn't really add up to me. Let me be very clear. My principal concern when it comes to the illegal occupation and the illegal blockades is the economic harm that Let was done Let me be to very Canada. clear. 
I think we can be really clear about what happened here. We were lied to. Any reasonable Canadian newsreader, any reasonable interpretation back when this happened, wow, the Emergency Measures Act. Like this is historically like not since the FLQ crisis was the predecessor of this law and vote. It's a huge deal. Fundamental freedoms are affected. Why are you doing this? On the advice of law enforcement. Anybody would reasonably conclude that that's what they're saying. Like we're giving law enforcement what they asked for. We've been advised by law enforcement. So now, okay, who? Ottawa police, not me, RCMP. We didn't ask for it. They lied to us. And it's pretty damn serious if you ask me. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, man yelling at cloud with this stuff because it really does seem to me like outside of like rabid partisan politics, I don't know that anyone cares. I think there is this widespread like consensus. People didn't like what was going on in Ottawa who were not a part of it. Uh, either, you know, with their emotional and spiritual support or physical or, or monetary support. Pretty much everybody else was like, ah, that makes me feel really uneasy. I don't like this. And I'm reading a lot of news stories about how terrible it is and in certain ways it was. And then the Emergency Measures Act is invoked and then it all goes away. Yeah. Was it the act that led to them to be able to? Could they have done it? With, who cares? Like, doesn't matter. The point is there was a bad thing and then there was the act and then the bad thing went away. I grew up learning about Canada and the FLQ crisis was a big deal in my education, right? I learned that this was a major turning point, controversy, still debated today. Did they have to do it? And in retrospect, we look back and God, no, Pierre Trudeau did not have to remove people's basic liberties and throw people into vans. I don't know, like suspend habeas corpus for the actions of a few criminals. But at the time, I understand that it really did feel destabilizing and like anything could happen. You compare that crisis to Ottawa, which was, as Freeland says, like a trade issue. It was an issue for people in neighborhoods affected. It was a huge nuisance. Some people will tell me that it was worse than that. But now that the dust is cleared, it was not violent in a physical violence kind of way. Nobody got killed. There were, they did not find guns. What we were told and the reasons why we were supposed to be afraid of it, somebody tried to burn down a building. No, that wasn't connected. So what it looks like to me, it was a protest. You know, it, not a protest I agree with, but it was a protest. And this time they suspended civil liberties and we're finding out now they gave banks the ability and banks used it to freeze people's bank accounts. If they thought maybe you were part of this convoy, the bank on their own was freezing people's bank accounts, cutting off families' access to money, and faces no liability for that if they got it wrong or if that was unjust. This is a major intrusion into people's rights. And now we're trying to get to the bottom of it, and we find out the government lied to us. I mean, there's kind of like the cynical part of my brain and, and, and kind of some other reactions, I guess. But, you know, when the Emergency Act was first called, I think part of part of my reaction as someone who lives in Ottawa, I mean, I live in a neighborhood that I could hear the honking. Thankfully, wasn't in an area where it was like directly right outside my window. But, you know, I, I was around it enough. And I think kind of when the Emergency Act got called, my first response to it was a confusion because my experience uh, to that point with this protest had been seeing lots of like real 
behavior, lots of like kind of threatening behavior. But on the police response, I mean, I saw police high-fiving protesters. I saw police helping, you know, protesters carrying jerry cans of gas. Like, oh yeah, like if you want to meet up with your buddies, like they're over there. In my view, like police were not, they seemed to just be facilitating things. I mean, it was a very bizarre sort of a bizarre situation there. So then when the emergency act gets called and it gets presented as the police need this to respond, the first reaction is like, well, like what response? The response has been kind of standing around high-fiving people. Yeah, the narrative that it suggests that the police would just love to crack heads and get these people off the streets and, and clear things up for the good law-abiding citizens of Ottawa. But God damn it, these civil liberties, you know, it's just uh, there's been a lot written about that. They had a lot of tools and powers at their disposal that they did not use. You know, the thing that I think people should be watching for here and, and where I think there'd be a lot of concern and I don't want to be like too speculative here, but I mean, it's going back to Freeland's comments about economic reputation, right? The fact that... When we actually like drill down and see what happens, the, the economic reputation doesn't come from Ottawa being occupied. Like there's millions of dollars in like lost revenue that businesses experienced, but that's not anything to to justify the emergency order if the concern is about our international like trade relationship with the United States. That has more to do with the border crossings. But we've seen the, the occupations of the border crossings were more a nuisance than a real issue. People were mostly just diverted to a different border. I think they cleared the major obstacle before the Emergency Measures Act was invoked. That problem was already disappearing. Yeah. The thing that I think is like really important here is that this was an anti-vaccine mandate, kind of sort of a right-wing conspiracy kind of thing that presented these economic shocks. But these aren't the only economic shocks that Canada's dealt with in recent years. I think the concern here that a lot of people would probably have would relate to something like the Wet'suwet'en fight against the coastal gasoline pipeline. You know, it was only a couple of years ago when there was like a police raid in, into the nation's territory and there was kind of like cross-country uh, rail shutdowns that brought Canada to its knees, that it brought the Canadian government to signing a memorandum of understanding uh, with with the nation's hereditary leadership to actually like work on implementing title. Like, this, this was kind of a big thing, but what the government's kind of done now is it's set a precedent where if it feels like its economic reputation could be harmed, and, and not even just that it is, if it just sort of feels like it could be, which is what Freeland was saying. It was like, this could potentially harm us in the future. And so that justifies an emergency order. What we've now done is we've set up a precedent to uh, crack down on people using economic disruptions as a tool. So where is the where is the hue and cry about that? I mean, it just seems to me like one, two, three connection point, and we certainly heard during those railway blockades, they are. This is like that's you're you're messing with our religion here. That, that's trade. That's 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 U.S. Canada trade. Get the cops in there, shut it down. And in fact, that's not what happened. They they reached an accommodation. It was an effective protest, and that's how that played out. It's hard to imagine a similar scenario playing out to the advantage of the protesters in the future, because now, as you say, what do we do when protesters are threatening our trade relations with the states and disrupting our economy? We turn civil liberties off. Yeah. I mean, like when we see emergency powers get deployed for something like, you know, border crossings, it's not hard to imagine that you could see emergency powers. Again, I'm going to use the coastal gas link pipeline as an example, because that pipeline, right, is to feed the LNG Canada export terminal, like the liquefied natural gas terminal. So this pipeline is moving gas from, you know, a gas deposit on one side of British Columbia to the coast. That LNG terminal, that export terminal is a $40 billion investment. It's the biggest investment in Canadian history. 
So uh, if they're willing to like, you know, use the emergency act to deal with like, you know, some border disruptions, it's really not hard to imagine that they'd be tempted to use it if there was going to be a disruption that threatened an investment of that size. I also don't want to minimize, I mean, like this protest that happened in Ottawa. Yeah, no one was killed, which obviously good, but but it was not like just a typical protest. I mean, like people were being threatened. Uh, there was all sorts of abuse and harassment happening. You know, it made a lot of residents in the city very unsafe. People were not leaving their homes. Mm -hmm. I think the concern is around state power, right? And how state power gets deployed. And people want to be concerned about overreach. And, and I think it's like fair to recognize when overreach happens. And, and you can also have walk and chew gum at the same time, right? I mean, people can say that occupation. I mean, there were some people there who were doing some pretty awful things and also pretty questionable for the government to be given itself powers like this on some pretty flimsy evidence by the sounds of it. The real like head scratcher bottom line of this as well is just it seems to have been purely an optics ceremonial symbolic gesture. Like it wasn't out of necessity. They were under tremendous pressure to show that they were doing something. The federal government looked completely impotent and they were being embarrassed on the world stage and like what the hell is happening in Canada. And it was like this allowed the appearance that they took stern action, much in the way that Pierre Trudeau, some people still revere him for like, just watch me. Uh, oh, you think he's a lefty, but look, he can be tough. It feels like we're going to learn more and more about this because there's going to be another inquiry into this. I think we might learn that this was just purely for show, like just a completely unnecessary thing. John, that shortcuts. Thanks for joining me for it. Thanks for having me. It was a great time. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed about the show or anything else at jesse at CanadaLand.com. I read what you send. John, where can people find you and your work? Canada's National Observer. Uh, we got the series Financing Disaster, which is mostly what I'm working on right now, which is this relationship between the financial sector and fossil fuel sector. Also on Twitter, Woodsideful. Those are the best ways to get me, though. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capcione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Our theme music is by So Called and syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Salut, ici Émilie Nicolas, l'animatrice de Détour, le tout premier balado en français de Canada Land. Au mois de mai, on a finalement eu la chance de lancer cette émission où on décortique les nouvelles en français. Écoutez les nouveaux épisodes de Détour donc mensuellement sur le fil principal de Canada Land. Et pour l'instant, je vous dis à bientôt.